the But God series. Men of Israel, and you who fear God, listen. God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king. God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king of whom he testified and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised before his coming. John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose, who do you, what do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No, but behold, after me is coming the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation for those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him, from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news, that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. As also it is written in the second psalm, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep, was laid with his fathers, and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. By him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it 
to you. And as they went out, the people begged that these things might be told to them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout uh, converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas as they spoke with them, urging them to continue in the grace of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Almighty God, we thank you once again uh, for this privilege and opportunity that we have to come under the ministry of the Word, for it is your Word that brings life. It is your Word that converts. It is your Word that regenerates. It is your Word that sanctifies. It is your Word that renews. It is your Word that cleanses. Oh, Lord Jesus, your word is sharper than any two-edged sword, and you will judge the world by your word one day. And so we come here, Lord God, seeking to understand your word, and that you would give me grace as a minister to unpack, to explain, and to apply the text before us. And, oh, Lord, that we may behold who you are and have a greater sense of your glory. Forgive us of our sins, forgive us of our pride, forgive us of our foolishness, forgive us of our resistance to you. May you speak to us this day in Christ's name, amen. If you could think back over your life, there's usually a sermon that will stand out to be the sermon that converted you. Maybe you were someone who grew up in church, you heard many sermons, you went to youth group, but there was that one sermon at one point in your life that you heard that changed your life forever. Maybe you never heard of Christ, maybe you grew up in another religion, maybe you grew up an atheist, but then one day you heard the word of God and your life was changed forever. God is pleased to use the foolishness of preaching the cross to save sinners. It's the message of salvation. It's the, it's the gospel. It's the good news. And that's why we do what we do. That's why we preach what we preach. And that is the method and the means that God has used for centuries to convert people. In fact, that is the ultimate but God, right? There was a point where we were sinners, astray, wandering, without God and with hope in this world, and then there was a but God. Now today, we are looking at the first sermon that the Apostle Paul ever preached. Well, I don't want to say the first sermon that he ever preached, but is the first sermon that he ever preached, that was recorded in the Bible. And so in the book of Acts chapter 13, we have the first recorded sermon. Again, this is probably an abbreviated version for the sake of ink and papyrus, but ultimately, this was the content of the Apostle Paul's sermon as he's preaching here in, in Antioch. And in this uh, sermon, we get a sense of who Paul is and what he's thinking. And this but God that comes at the center of it tells us the event that changes everything for the Jewish people. And that is the resurrection of Christ. And let me make it clear in the outset of this. There is no Christianity, there is no good news, there is no forgiveness of sins, there is no message of salvation 
apart from the resurrection. That is the gospel. You can preach Christ crucified and he died for your sins and that is true, hallelujah. But if you do not tell people that Christ has risen from the dead, you've preached an incomplete gospel. In fact, it is not the gospel at all. The resurrection is crucial because it changes absolutely everything. It is the central doctrine of the Christian faith. Without it, we do not have anything to stand on. Now, looking at the sermon, there's a few things that I want to point out. Number one is the audience that Paul is speaking to. He is speaking to primarily a Jewish audience. He's in the synagogue as was his method. And his Jewish audience was also uh, mixed with Gentile believers. Not believers in Christ, not yet, but Jewish converts. These were Gentiles, they're called God-fearers. And God-fearers were Gentiles who had converted to Judaism. And you could see this not only in the first verse, in, six, in, in uh, verse 17, rather, or 16, where it says, Men of Israel and you who fear God, but also in verse 43, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas. So it was a mixed audience of Jews and Gentiles, but they all believed in the same thing. They believed in the God of the Bible. They believed in Jehovah of the Old Testament was the true and living God and that his word was true. And so therefore, Paul has no problem launching into a sermon, pointing everything back to Scripture. As you look through this, what is Paul doing? Everything is referencing Scripture or quoting Scripture. Now, I got to tell you, the makeup of any good sermon is that it is based on and filled with the word of God. I don't care to hear people's opinions. I want to hear scripture. I want to hear God's word. That's where the power is. You could tell all the jokes you want. You could, you could tell funny stories. You can give uh, 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 all kinds of opinions and thoughts about what's going on. But at the end of the day, it is God's word where the power lies. There are too many preachers today who have lost faith and confidence in the word, and instead they have confidence in themselves and their own abilities. We must always rest in the power of God's word. And then thirdly, I want you to see the message that is being preached here. It's very clear, verse 26. He said is the message of salvation. He preaches Christ and Christ crucified. It is the message of salvation that was promised to Israel. I want you to see that, that there you cannot take the message of salvation and and divorce it from national Israel and their history. God has a history with Israel in the Old Testament, and it blends into the New Testament. Jesus is the promised one, the Jewish Messiah, the son of David, and that link is inextricable. We must see the importance of that, the relevance of that. And fourthly, it is significant to recognize the importance of the resurrection the importance of the resurrection. You see, as we're going to look at in our first point in this recapitulation of Israel's history, there is this rebellion, there is this resistance that, that is seen throughout their history. And in the end, that rebellion comes to a climax when the Jewish people hand Jesus over to Pontius Pilate to be executed. It was high-handed rebellion in the worst possible sense, it was the last straw that broke the camel's back. And it would almost seem as if Israel had won. It would almost seem as if 
the ethnic Jews were complete in their stubbornness and rebellion and they had defeated God. But God raised him from the dead. But God conquered the grave. You see, what Israel failed to recognize is that God's purposes and plan could not be thwarted by man. God's purposes and plan, even for his people, for his nation, for the Gentiles, was going to go forward and he would use their rebellion to accomplish his purpose. The but God here rests in the very fact that man cannot, will not, is unable to change the purpose and plan and the will of God. Let's look at this in a few ways. Number one, let's look at Paul's recapitulation in verse 16 through 25 as he summarizes Israel's history in the Old Testament. We saw this already a little bit when we were um, earlier in Nehemiah chapter 9. But I want you to see again where, and this is common in Jewish preaching, is to recapitulate Israel's history of rebellion, but also to emphasize the Lord's initiative of grace in the lives of his people. In verse 16 through 25, I want you to see that God is the subject of every verb. It is God who chose. It is God who made the people great. It is, it is God with an uplifted arm led them out. It is, it is God who put up with them. It is God who destroyed. It is God who gave the land. It is God who, who gave them judges. It is God who gave them a king. It is God who removed Saul. It is God who raised up David. It is God from beginning to end. And ultimately it was God who brought to Israel a savior, Jesus. You cannot help but to see that the hand of God is all throughout redemptive history bringing about his purpose, his will, and decrees. And that plan cannot be stopped. But he starts with this nation Israel. He chooses Abraham. He chooses Israel. Abraham was a pagan. He was an idolater. He was like any other person in the world. He was from Ur of the Chaldeans. He worshipped the stars. He worshipped the moon. And God revealed himself to him. Abraham didn't choose God. God chose Abraham. And God said, I'm going to take you, I'm going to set you apart, I'm going to make a covenant with you, and I'm going to make a people out of your, your loins, and I'm going to make nations out of you, and, and kings, and, and, and I'll give you the land of Canaan. And when God makes a promise, he keeps it. Things got off track, wasn't again, not because of God, but uh, not because, I'm saying of, of the people rather, but it was God's plan. And God brought them to Egypt, and for 450 years they, they were there, and it was God who sustained them and made them great. And then Egypt became uh, threatened by the, the, the multiplying of the, of the nation of Israel and were threatened by its seemingly this great people that could overthrow them. And it was God who brought them through the Red Sea, and it was God who gave them the land of Canaan. But it was interesting when God brought them into Canaan, and they settled in, he reminded them and warned them that they would never get arrogant, that they would never become proud, that they would never look at themselves and look what I have accomplished. Deuteronomy 7, 6-8 says, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God, and the Lord your God has chosen you, 
to be a people for his treasured possessions out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. And it was not because you were more in number than the other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of peoples, but it's because the Lord loves you and is keeping his oath that he swore to your fathers, that the Lord has brought you with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. It was God's love, it was God's covenant, it was God's promise that led them all the way. Secondly, God put up with them. God put up with them. I I love this part because when we talked in Nehemiah 9 about the grace of God throughout Israel's history, we have to see the grace, the amazing grace of God. In verse 18, it says he put up with them, but I like the King James Version, what it says. He suffered their manners. He suffered their manners. These were not well-mannered people. They were not grateful. They did not respond to God in humility. They were ill-mannered. And God suffered them. He tolerated. He put up with them. God was patient and long-suffering. And it's a reminder that the God that God suffers our manners as well. It's not just Israel. But look to the New Testament, look to the church and all her failures. Look at our own lives. And we're reminded the Lord suffers our manners. He puts up with us. Ironside says this, how sad much of the history of the church is, but God is born with our manners in the wilderness when we have acted like fretful, irritable children. He has dealt with us in such loving kindness, not only collectively, but individually. And too many of us can look back over the years and see how we failed the Lord but he has never failed us. Amen? Thirdly, God gave them their land and destroyed their enemies. It was God who gave them the victory. They picked up their swords, but it was God who went to battle for them. And finally, God gave them leaders. He gave them judges. You know, I want you to think, there's two words that come out here. He removed Saul and he raised up David. Those two Words are very important, those two phrases, removed and raised up. It was the same thing that, that was spoken of in Daniel when Daniel the prophet said it is God who raises up and it is God who removes. It is God who brings up and God who brings low. And again, the sovereign initiative of God. You know, we, we worry and we fret about who our national leaders are whether uh, who, who is the king or who is the president or who is ruling. And, and we look throughout history and we, we see that there are times when we have good leaders and there are times when we have tyrants. And, and you look at this and you wonder in the human perspective, how do these things happen? It is God. As hard as that is to accept, it is God who raises up leaders. It's God who brings leaders low. Well, but we live in a democracy. We vote, yes, but God has the final vote. It is God who puts his thumb on the scale and he has the final vote. He declares the winner. God puts people in power, not us. In our frail, feeble, finite minds, we think, yes, our our votes count and, and, and to some extent in the human realm they do, but it is God's will that will ultimately triumph. Nothing's happening outside of God's control. That's hard to accept at times, but it is the truth. There was a purpose for Saul being king for 40 years and then 
It was because God wanted Israel to see the worst of what they could have. They demanded a king. They rebelled. They said, we want a king. It was Samuel who said, isn't the Lord your king? Isn't that good enough for you? They wanted, we want a king like the nations. We want someone who will go and fight for us. They had lost their way. They were looking to man to rescue them. So they got what they wanted. God said, okay, you want that? I'll give you what you want. And they got, they got their strong man. They got Saul and Saul fought his battles and he quickly turned out to be the worst king that Israel ever had. And for 40 years, they had to live with him. We worry about eight years of having a president. Imagine 40 years of having a bad ruler. But then God raised up David. A man after his own heart. One whom he says will do all my will. David wasn't a perfect man. We know that. He raped Bathsheba, murdered her husband. He committed great sin. But there was something about David's heart, about his love for God and his love for his law, that even when he sinned, he was a broken man. He was contrite. He sought God's forgiveness, and God was merciful to him. And although he suffered in his life, there was something about David. He was the man of God's own choosing, and God raised him up to be the shepherd king of Israel. He was a type of Christ. And what I want you to see is when you look at Israel's history, all of it is typology. Israel is a type of Christ. Israel is declared in the Old Testament to be the son of God. Israel wandered in the wilderness for 40 years, being tempted. And it was Christ who was in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights without bread, being tempted by Satan. Israel failed, Christ succeeded. It was Israel who was supposed to be a light to the nations, and they failed. Christ was a light to the Gentiles, and through him all may believe. David was a type of Christ. David was a type in the sense that he was a shepherd king. He was a man who was lowly in heart and sought to do the will of God. He wasn't perfect. He was a, still a frail human being, but he was a type and a foreshadow of who the Messiah would be, someone who would rule the people, not as a tyrant, not as a man, not as like the Gentile kings, but would rule as God would rule. And just as David was a man after God's own heart, it was Christ who came in the fullness of time, the Son of God, filled with the Spirit, to declare the will of God, to do the will of God, and is a shepherd leader. And that was why Paul brings us through this history is to point us that Although Israel had strayed and Israel had done wrong, God had a purpose and plan, and it was ultimately that through David's line, he was going to bring the Messiah into the world, and that through Christ, through Jesus, he was going to fulfill all the promises for Israel. Those promises are many. He promised that through Abraham's seed, all the nations will be best. He, he promised a ruler who would, who would rule the nations with a rod of iron. He promised forgiveness of sin. He promised the resurrection from the dead. All of these promises are found in the Old Testament, and they all find their fulfillment in Jesus Christ. In fact, all of the promises of the Old Testament, while not 100% fulfilled in Christ's first coming, will be ultimately fulfilled in the second coming. Christ is the center of the Old Testament. 
Everything points to Jesus. If you're in the Old Testament, everything points to him in the future. And then if you're in the New Testament, you're living now, everything points back to Christ. That's the fulfillment of God's promises. And that's exactly when we get to verse 24. Paul now tells us about John the Baptist. He had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he, no, but behold, after me one is coming in the sandals, whose feet I can, not worthy to untie. He's clearly quoting from the Synoptic Gospels, Paul, showing that there's already the tradition established, that the Gospel accounts have been written and, and circulated. John is the last of the Old Testament prophets and he points to Christ. Now that we see that Christ is the center of all this, how does Israel respond? Verse 26, brothers, sons of the family of Abraham. He's speaking now to to the Jewish people and those among you who fear God, the Gentile converts. He says, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. This salvation is the message that God has sent through his son, Jesus Christ, for those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him, nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they carried out all that was written of them of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. This is where it just seems Israel goes from bad to worse. Christ came to his own, but his own received him not, John tells us. They missed the hour of their visitation. He came and they did not recognize him. They they did not see him as the Messiah. Well, their expectations were skewed. They, They were waiting for this this messianic figure who would come on a white horse and and would have a sword wet, ready for vengeance, and who would kill the Roman Empire and destroy the pagan nations that had oppressed Israel. You see, the Pharisees and religious leaders were more concerned with their national pride than they were with their sins. That should be a warning to us, right? Should it not be a warning that that we look to man, that we're looking for a deliverance from from national problems and and looking to man to, to grant us national pride instead of looking to Christ who saves us from sins? The Jews didn't recognize Jesus because he didn't meet the expectations of what they wanted. He was the promised Messiah the people of Israel needed, but he was not the one they wanted. They didn't even understand the scripture, but this again was part of God's plan. It was part of God's plan because they didn't understand. They They were destined in their hardness of heart to be used by God to bring about the purpose of God. We have to remember something, that when people cannot perceive and understand who Jesus is, 
This is because in our natural state we are all blind and we are all dead in sins and trespasses. You cannot understand. You cannot read the scriptures and see that Christ is who he is. You're not going to be able to, to believe. You're not going to be able to perceive who Christ is apart from God's sovereign grace. It's going to open your eyes and grant you grace to believe. And I've learned this because, you know, listen, you preach to people, you, you share, you witness to family, friends, and, and sometimes you can talk to your blue in the face, have all the right answers, quote all the right Bible verses, give all the proof, all the evidence, and guess what? They still don't believe. Why? Because it hasn't been granted to them. 2 Corinthians 4, 3 through 4 says this, If our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the mind of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. And Paul goes on to say in 1 Corinthians 2, 6 through 8, he says, Among the mature we impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. And none of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. You know, if people don't grasp the gospel, you can't get angry at them. You can't be embittered against them. You have to pity them. Look at, look at Luke chapter 19. I want you to see something here. I want you to see when, when the Lord made the triumphant entry, he knew it was coming. He knew that he was going to be rejected. He knew that he would be handed over by his own people to the, to the Gentiles. And, and look at his heart. Look at the heart of Christ. Verse 41. When he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day, the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation." Jesus wept. He wept over Jerusalem. He wept over the spiritual state of the Jewish people. He prayed for them on the cross. If they only knew what would make for peace. They were blinded by their self-righteousness. They were blinded by their arrogance. They were blinded by their zeal for national pride. I, I, I think the, the crux of that is in John chapter 11, after Christ raises Lazarus from the dead. That should have been the final miracle that if there was any skeptic said, you know what, I'm not believing, but this one, this is pretty undeniable. Lazarus was in the grave four days. This isn't hocus pocus. This guy must be the son of God. Any rational person would say that, right? But right after Christ raised Lazarus from the dead, Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin get together. And what are, what's their response? They said, Jesus is the Messiah. We should follow him. No, that's not their response. Their response is, we got to do something about Jesus. The whole nation will follow him and we're going to lose our power. They cared more about their power and national pride than they did about following God. 
Goes back, you know, it's very similar. They wanted King Saul. God says, okay, you can have him. Get what you want. That's what you want. You don't want me. You want that. And it's the same thing with Jesus. You don't want me. I'll give you what you want. In 70 AD, the Jews put up the biggest fight against the Romans. And boy, did they suffer. Just as Jesus predicted here, they hemmed them in for 100 days, starved them to death. Women were eating their own children. It was a bloodbath. That day when Jerusalem was sacked by Rome, over one million people were murdered. 100,000 were taken into slavery and led out of Jerusalem. God is just. God is just. Well, this brings me now to my final point, but God. You know, one thing is, you can't stop the plan of God. Remember, for the disciples, that, those days from Good Friday to Easter Sunday must have been horrific. Think about it. You devoted three years of your life to following Jesus. You believed he was the Messiah. You gave up everything. You gave up your job. You gave up your family. You had followed Christ. People made fun of you. They're like, how could you do this? This guy's a false prophet. You gave up everything. The Jewish power came and they crucified Jesus. They killed him and they buried him. You know what it is to be hung on a tree in, 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 in biblical terms? That's to come under the curse of God. You're, you're anathema. That was the whole point. Christ became a curse for us. So the curse of sin that is upon us would be put on him and he would bear our sins and pay the penalty for us. They didn't understand that, the disciples, in those three days. They thought it was over. We're finished. How can we move forward? But God raised him from the dead. But God raised him from the dead. If there was no but God on Easter Sunday, we wouldn't be here today. It changed everything. The implications of the resurrection are absolutely profound. It totally revitalized the disciples. It changed their whole outlook. Imagine how blown away they were with Jesus, but he, he was with them for 40 days and 40 nights. He spent stayed on the earth with them till he ascended. That's what it says in verse 31. He appeared, and for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee. And they go forward to be his witnesses. And we bring you this good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. This was all part of God's plan. It was part of God's fulfillment. I want you to see a couple of things here. Turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 15. Put your thumb there. Because 1 Corinthians 15 shows us the profound impact of the resurrection. You see, in Corinth, many had questioned if the resurrection was real. As I would remind you, brothers of the gospel, that I preached to you, verse 1, which you received and which you stand and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast the word I preached to you unless you believed in vain, for I delivered to you as first importance what I also received that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scripture. He was buried and then he was raised on the third day. What? In accordance with scriptures. Go back to Acts 13. And I want you to look at this. Keep your thumb there. 
Notice what, what, what Paul goes on to say. Verse 33 of Acts 13, and he has fulfilled to us their children by raising Jesus as it is written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. He's quoting Psalm chapter 2. There is a reason he's quoting it's because it speaks of the sonship of Christ, but also to fulfill God's promise to David that he would never lack an heir to the throne of Israel. In verse 34 of Acts 13, he says, And the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Psalm 50, uh, Isaiah 55.3. And there he's four, he says in another psalm, Verse 35, you will not let your Holy One see corruption. Oh, that's beautiful. That's beautiful because in that it's talking about, in, in Psalm 16, it's a messianic psalm that talks about the resurrection. You will not let your Holy One see corruption. And this was not for the purpose of David, as verse 36 says. David died, his body's in the grave, but it is for Christ. Christ raised Jesus. Christ was raised up from the dead. God raised Jesus. Go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. God gave witnesses to this. It says in verse 6, said, or verse 5, he appeared to Cephas, then to the 12. Verse 6, he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. Most of them are still alive. And though some have fallen asleep, then he appeared to James and to all the apostles. And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me. Christ did not leave himself without a witness. Not only were the 12 apostles witnesses, not only were, was, was Paul a witness, but 500 people were witnesses as well. You, Paul is writing this in the first century. He says, many of whom are still alive. In other words, you don't believe what I'm saying? Go ask the rest of the apostles. And if you don't believe them, you don't believe me, ask some of those 500 who are still alive. That's a lot of witnesses. In a court of law, it takes two or three witnesses to establish a matter. Over 500 witnesses, this is beyond reasonable doubt. This is a fact. Christ raised from the dead. You may be skeptical. Well, how is it possible? Just believe that it is true. God raised him from the dead. There's an empty tomb. Christ is not here. He is risen. He is in heaven. And he rules the universe. He's coming back one day too. Now the similarities here to this but God are found also in other places in Acts. In Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 4. But God raised him from the dead. This is, this is important to the gospel message. This is important to what God is preaching to us. It makes a difference. Why? Because without it, we cannot be forgiven of our sin. Look in 1 Corinthians 15 again. Verse 16. Well, I'm going to read in verse 12. Follow with me. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there's no resurrection of the dead? But if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. And your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God. 
because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. And those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Get this, if there's no resurrection, the apostles are all blasphemers, they're liars, they're false prophets. Your faith is a lie, it's futile, but, but the worst part is, you're still in your sins, and you will die in your sins, and you will face a fiery judgment one day, and you will bear the weight and the justice of your sins. The good news is that Christ is risen from the dead. That's what makes the, good, the resurrection good news. Going back to Acts 13. Verse 37. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. That word freed there is the word is the word that we have for justification in the Greek. It is to be justified. It's the same word that Paul uses in uh, his, his it, it, the word is dekayu. It is the same word that Paul uses in Romans and Galatians often when he talks about our standing with God. And to be justified means to be declared innocent. It means to be to be declared just, to be, to be uh, uh, righteous before God. In other words, our sins are not only forgiven, but we have a right standing with God. And this is because Christ rose from the dead. It's not because you're a good person. Christ's death takes care of the forgiveness issue. It's been washed away, but without Christ's resurrection, you have no righteousness. You see, my friends, man's greatest need is to be forgiven of his sin. We don't take sin seriously enough. I don't think so. I mean, I don't think we take sin seriously enough in our own lives. Never mind taking sin seriously in the outside world. We've become desensitized to sin by our culture. Our culture has desensitized us, whether you believe it or not. And so we sin with impunity. And we don't realize there's going to be a penalty for that. You cannot sin against a holy God and get away with it. The miseries of mankind are all because of sin. Look what sin does to people. It ruins lives. It twists their view of God. It twists their view of man. People hurt themselves. They hurt others. We kill. We destroy. Sin makes people miserable. But we love it. You know, the reality is all human beings are hopeless addicts. All human beings are hopeless addicts to sin. 
You know what an addict is? Someone who keeps doing the same thing even though they know it hurts them. The addict is the person who keeps drinking even though they know drinking's killing them, they go for another drink. The addict is someone who keeps gambling even though they know that gambling is putting them broke, they can't stop, they keep doing it. They love it. They love it and they hate it. That's what sin is. Sin. Every one of us is addicted to sin until Christ sets you free. That's the beautiful thing of justification. Through that comes freedom, which is why I think this is... Jesus says, whoever believes in the Son is set free, and whoever he sets free is free indeed. You will not experience true freedom from sin until you come to Christ. You are a slave to sin until you come to Christ. You do sin's bidding. You do its will, even though you know it's hurting you. Drug addiction, pornography, gambling, those are just symptoms that are very obvious. Oh, some of the lesser ones like pride, like gluttony, materialism. Ah, those are the ones we overlook, but they're just as destructive. They're just as destructive. Man's greatest need is to be forgiven. Therefore, Grant's greatest need is to be freed from the bondage of sin. The good news is today that we are all slaves to sin, but God raised him from the dead. The good news here today is we are all heading on a collision course with hell, but God raised him from the dead. The reality is that that in and of ourselves, we are hopeless, but God raised him from the dead. If God did not raise Christ from the dead, where would we be? And because Christ is risen from the dead, he raises us up from the dead. First, by giving us the new birth and making us new creations in him, giving us a new heart, a new mind, a new will, a new life, a new destiny, and ultimately will raise our physical bodies up one day just like his. That's the power of the resurrection. That's the good news. That's the gospel. It's man's greatest need. That's what we preach here, grace and truth. It's what every church ought to be preaching. And if they're not preaching it, then shame on them. It's the but God that is the, that is the centerpiece of Christianity. Well, let me conclude. This message is not just for Jews, it's for all. It's a message of salvation. And I think that what comes clear here is not only you have an incomplete gospel by not preaching the resurrection, but you have an incomplete gospel if you don't preach about sin. There'd be no need for Jesus to come and die and raise from the dead if there wasn't sin. If Israel was good and they didn't do anything wrong and they were faithful to God, we wouldn't be sitting here. If we were all good people and we could make it to heaven on our own, Christ would have never came. Christ came to save sinners. And you cannot preach a gospel of good news until you first tell the truth to people that they are sick. Right? You can't tell people I have a cure for your disease unless you first tell them you have a disease first. We all have a disease, this horrible addiction to sin. Christ is the answer. He's the only answer. 
And apart from him, there is no hope. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you for this time. Thank you for this message of salvation. I thank you for this good news of the resurrection. Thank you for the fact that it may have seemed like it was over, that you had been defeated, but you raised Christ from the dead. Thank you that we can look to the resurrection as the basis of our faith, that our faith is not futile. We're not the most men to be pitied. We're not dead in our sins and trespasses. We're alive today because Christ is alive. To you be the glory. Amen. Amen. Please stand as we sing once again. Sing praise to God.